Welcome back to Time Shifters Podcast and a happy Halloween to everybody. This is Christopher. I am here with Tom. Tom, how have you been? I know you've been busy. <laughs> yes, no, I have been. Uh, uh, we've had a little bit to do over the past 15 nights. We have, so we're going to kind of forego a lot of the uh, back and forth and the discussion and because we haven't been doing a whole heck of a lot other than watching movies for the last uh, 15 days. Trust me, folks, we do it so you don't have to. But we recommend that you do anyway. Yeah, in a few cases, that is exactly. But uh, we'll get into that as we go on. So, yes, we wanted to talk to you about the first effectively the first half of the month of our 31 nights of Halloween all the movies we've been watching as we said before these are all made for TV horror or mystery movies uh, not all of them are really horror they are they all I think fall into that sort of October theme you know there's there's a mystery about them they might be a little spooky there's a mystery maybe just something that you would uh think about curling up to on you know on the couch with the lights down low and the blanket wrapped around you they they all at least have that title that catchy title that says "Ooh, maybe i'm in for something yes exactly yes there was quite a few uh we'll, we'll definitely get to there where we thought oh this must be a werewolf film nah. <laughs> or not the case at all but we will get to that <laughs> yeah or there's gonna be a lot more to this than there is. <laughs> yep. Nope. As a matter of fact, there's not. So let's just go ahead and get this ball rolling. Dive and right we in. started. Yes. We started out with a 1981 made for TV movie called Dark Night of the Scarecrow. And Tom, I think we hit the ground running with this one. No, absolutely. Uh, uh, and I'm going to start doing the absolutely thing again. Um, no, uh, <laughs> this one was a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know that I was fully expecting uh, what we the treat we got out of this one. No, not at all. And I think some of that comes from when it was originally written, uh, and perhaps even when it was filmed. Definitely when it was written, it was intended for a uh, motion picture. Okay. The, the The writer was thinking this is going to go to the theaters, but CBS Television bought the uh, bought the film and decided to put it made for TV. And apparently, he only had to make minor changes in order to make it, you know, TV okay. This had quality enough to it where I, I could see it being in a theater. The, this this had solid acting, solid, solid storytelling, and kind of kept you on edge from time to time. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, Charles Durning uh, stars as like our, our main villain, the, uh, <laughs> the nasty postman in this one. He's the only one where I feel like oh, he feels like made for TV. And I don't know why, because honestly, I've probably seen him more in motion pictures. And my, my first go-to is always like the Muppet movie, though. You know, it's like this is what Doc Hopper did after his uh, frog leg thing uh, went, went bust. <laughs> he turned into a mailman. <laughs> yeah, see, uh, I think if this was going to go to the theaters, uh, he would have been the mayor of the town, not uh, a mailman. Right, yeah. yeah, exactly. Put him somewhere a little higher up, yeah. And, and man, I tell you, for, for a letter carrier, this man had a lot of sway in town. 
He did. He did. Uh, it was a... There were so many little levels to this film that you just were not expecting. You got the idea of the mail carrier that everyone listens to. He's like, everybody knows. But then there's the people that know him and then suspect him of certain things. There's those little lines about, I know how, I see how you've, you've looked at that little girl. I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> Are we going to bring that into this too? <laughs> it, it did go down a lot of uh, avenues uh, that... When we get to a, a, the courtroom thing and the injustice that goes on and the railroading, and, and clearly uh, there's a ton of cronyism. It, it, it had a political vibe to it. It was just, yeah, it had a lot of neat elements that I just wasn't expecting out of this. No. And as, as I said when, we, when I originally posted that we were watching this one, Larry Drake may be one of the most underappreciated character actors that has ever been uh, on movies or television. Yes. The guy is amazing. He plays the, the Bubba Ritter character in this. And he would go on to play a, a role not too unlike Bubba in, uh, was it L.A. Law or no? One of those courtroom uh, series. Actually, you, you might be right. It might be L.A. Law. That's the one that first came to mind, so I'm going to guess that's what it is. Uh, but he's also, he, he was like the villain in Darkman. Yes. Or was it Darkman 2? No, it was no, Darkman. No, it was the first Darkman. I think he's in Darkman, and he's in uh, the second or the third one. There's a Durant yeah, Lives they, they, or something. Yeah, that's that. like the return of Durant <laughs> or something like yes. that. Yes. <laughs> because we want to milk this franchise for all it's worth. <laughs> yeah. But he, I mean, but he's great. He does the uh, the character that he does here, who's just the, the kind of the mentally challenged uh, Bubba. He, it's just completely believable. But then he can turn the corner and go into Dark Man and be one of the most cold and sadistic bad guys that I've ever seen on film. You know, going around collecting people's fingers and stuff with, with six cigar, cigar cutters. Cutter. Ah, ah, <laughs> creepy as all hell. Yeah, I, I love the guy. And that's. That's what he was amazing about. Uh, because this was going to be what it is, which is, it, it's a horror movie with a, a, a spirit overtone, like a haunting kind of thing, uh, where you're not entirely sure whether or not that's what's happening. But because that's where that's going to go, even as he's playing the very innocent, he has the right touch of creepy while he's doing it. Like, you could kind of feel where some of the guys were coming from from it. I mean, it, it, clearly it's his age and his height and, and all of that. But even while he's being all innocent and all that, there's just this little touch of dark that I kept picking up on. Well, and I think they... I think that's the filmmaking right there. Yes. I mean, he is like a 30-something-year-old man with the mind of like a 12-year-old. And so when this 30-something-year-old man is sitting in the field and playing flowers with a, another 12-year-old girl, they, I think that's maybe even on our own heads. We can't help but kind of, it's a prejudice, maybe, that we can't help, you know, unplug. That we kind of think, ooh, there's, there's something not right about that. Uh, even though what's going on is completely innocent. There's just something sometimes in your head that you just, you can't quite completely turn it off. Well, not to mention, you start the movie with the title Dark Knight of the Scarecrows. <laughs> right. So, 
So you're kind of going, okay, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> Speaking of waiting for, I, I think this film, you know, it opens up in the first five minutes and we get what I called Chekhov's uh, wood chipper. <laughs> you got, if you show a wood chipper in the first act, someone's got to fall in it in the third. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've never seen it show up in a film, especially with somebody using it. Like, if it's just sitting docile in a corner somewhere, maybe no. But if people are putting wood and you film that, <laughs> yep. it's getting used on somebody. Some, someone's going in there. <laughs> I just kept waiting for that. But no, I do like the fact that they really left it up in the air as far as was this something spiritual was this a haunting was this it, it almost was like a uh, halloween would be the closest you know with michael myers right. um is he something supernatural or is he just someone crazed yes yeah, the original halloween yeah you know, when you get into the sequels things change and obviously it becomes a little bit more supernatural but but yeah no i did, is it possible he just didn't die when he got shot now he got shot an awful lot so. <laughs> You're right. Well, and you get the impression that they actually saw the body. They talked about how many uh, gunshot wounds he had in him. So they obviously found the body. He's been probably interred, and yet the scarecrow is coming back. So you know, is the, is someone else involved? Someone that knows? Or I mean, it keeps you guessing right up until the very end. And even the very end, you're kind of like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Just because the scarecrow walks off with the little girl. <laughs> right. Doesn't mean that that was him. Yeah. No, it was a fantastic, it was a great way to start this uh, this little uh, exercise this month. I really enjoyed this film. No, this was a lot. Are we ready for number two? Number two, we did uh, Dracula from 1974. Uh, I, I, not to be confused with Dracula from any other year. Uh, <laughs> this one starred Jack Palance in the title role of uh, Dracula. And um, as you brought up in, in uh, some of your conversation online, this one really hit on the the kind of the romantic side of Dracula, the, the notion that he is driven by this need to reconnect with a love from when he was alive. Yes, yes. So this is actually the first time that that happens. Since then, it's been done so many times, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that doesn't think it's in the original novel. Right. Uh, but this is where it, it, it happened for the first time. It was uh, written by Richard Matheson. He's got a lot of horror and sci-fi cred under his belt. Directed by Dan Curtis, who, of course, did a lot of... who did created Dark Shadows, the... Uh, supernatural soap opera. soap opera yeah yes which also involved a, a vampire with uh reincarnated reincarnated love okay. and that sort of stuff so he pulled a lot from dark shadows and then put it in and wrapped it up into dracula well with that description absolutely he did that <laughs> <laughs> well this was an entertaining watch um it's so gentle kind of in, in, in a telling of Dracula like um, and, and when I say that I uh, other than Jack Palance in teeth can't kiss for damn uh, 
was the <laughs> least romantic thing that I have ever seen filmed. Uh, it there wasn't a whole lot of him going after people. There wasn't. It didn't have that real vampire-y. It, this was more the mm. the romantic drama component, and and then neither here nor there. But one of the things that kept drawing my eye again it's it's made for tv it's on a budget they did a great job with using uh all sorts of different locations but the homes that they were in um while they were trying to make them period like i kept finding things that would just it would catch my eye especially since i'm house hunting these days anyway uh, i just keep <laughs> catching these things i'm like that's an electric line. <laughs> like uh, I keep seeing uh, the tubing and stuff going up walls and stuff like that. Uh, like it's, a, it's, it's a gas line, Tom. It's a gas line. Ga- gas lines. <laughs> <laughs> that that was okay then too. Okay. Yeah. Um, sure. <laughs> but yeah, stuff like that was drawing me away just to get me to giggle. But like, yeah, like when we get to the end, the big climax. Um, it was more like stage acting than anything. There wasn't a whole lot of to it. Is it's Jack Palance trying to look fierce, but he's not doing anything. Hmm. Like he's standing in the room hissing at them and all that, but he's like he's not lunging at anyone. He's not. He, he's a vampire with great strength, but but as long as they hold their little cross up, uh, he is at bay at all times. And he's just right. kind of slinking around, trying to avoid it. So, right, yeah, it wasn't well, action. I think, right, no, no, I think that's just a. That's unfortunately, it's just something that comes with the character Dracula. There's just only so much you can do. Um, you're gonna have to have the showdown to defeat your your menace, and it's gonna be one of two different ways. You're either gonna find him sleeping in a coffin, you're gonna put a stake in his heart. Or you're going to, you know, back him into a corner with a cross and open a window and let the sun in or something. I, it's just, that's what happens. Well, yeah, no, I, it is. And then it's just kind of, they used literally like all three <laughs> yes. on him. And they must not have had either an idea how they wanted to do the effects or any kind of budget for the effects, but like... They're throwing up the windows uh, in, in, in stark sunlight, and he is just going. <sighs> he's just he's cowering away, but nothing's happening. <laughs> and right when I'm used to so many other vampire films really throwing themselves in at that that the death scene part, this one seemed anticlimactic overall. You. You wanted to see the the smoke curling up from under the collar. Yeah, I mean, sort of yeah, a little puff of smoke wouldn't have hurt, uh, uh, or at least start changing his makeup so he's a little red or something. Right. Yeah. So something well, to show he's having a reaction, other than uh, he needs a good pair of shades. <laughs> right. Uh, I'll agree with you that uh, I will also agree with some other some of your other points. Is the location shooting I think helps make this film. I think it was a brilliant idea not to do studio sets. I mean, they filmed in a castle, they filmed in a like Victorian home or something like that. Really smart move, and I, I think that really works for this. Jack Palance I think makes a more formidable Dracula than I would have 
ever expected. I really expected to be laughing at his Dracula the whole way. But no, I my apologies, Mr. Palance, because I, I think he did a fantastic job. Um, I, I was really impressed with it. This is actually apparently his second uh, collaboration with uh, Dan Curtis. He did a 1968 TV film, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I'm really curious to see Jack Palance as a Jekyll and Hyde character. I hope he played the star there. Yeah, um, no, I could see him doing really good stuff with that. Yeah, I've got to look that one up. When, when we're all done with this, I think that one's definitely going to be one that I'm going to dig up. I, yeah, no, because, uh, yeah, had we known about that, that probably would have made this uh, this year's list. Overall, I enjoyed it. I mean, it is, it's it's a telling of Dracula. Right. Other than the reincarnated love thing thrown in. But other than that, it's a Dracula, and we've seen it dozens of times uh, before this and two dozen times since this. So, Well, yeah, I, I mean, I was kind of a fan of the, the Bram Stoker's Dracula when it was out and all that, the Gary Oldman and Keanu Reeves. I, I kind of liked it at the time. It, it, it's like watching a primer for that one in this one. Oh, no, absolutely. Well, that's why this film was originally called Bram Stoker's Dracula, and they weren't allowed to call it that anymore because Francis Ford Coppola really wanted to call his Bram Stoker's Dracula, and so they had to make a lot of uh, some some deals and this and that. So if you find this one at all, it's just Dracula, yeah, <laughs> or or Dan Curtis's Dracula. Well, I think we could probably go ahead and move on. Time for number three. Yep, this one from 1974, uh, Killer Bees. This was actually, uh, strangely enough, it was a not any kind of a Halloween movie. This is actually, oh, it aired on my birthday in 1974 on ABC. Uh, starring uh, Gloria Swanson is like the main, um, <laughs> she's the queen bee. Queen bee, yep. <laughs> and also the cast includes uh, Kate Jackson and uh, Edward Albert, and we'll talk about those both those two uh, names later on in our uh, discussions here as well. Kate Jackson, of course, is from Charlie's Angels. She's my favorite angel. So I, I understand. Uh, I, I was always kind of a Cheryl Ladd guy. Okay, understood. Uh, something about her voice. I don't know what it is, that that, that weird kind of odd She's got tone that, to her that, voice. That deeper, sultrier voice. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Either I just that always or she smokes her. heavily and you like that. <laughs> <laughs> this movie starts out exactly like you expect a movie called Killer Bees to start out. And then it's like, okay, we got that out of the way. We're going to tell you something that you normally see on like Tales of the Unexpected. Yes. We're going to go Twilight Zone on your butt now. <laughs> that I wasn't expecting the direction that... that went all of a sudden yeah after our first major killer bee death we're into this tale of this odd family that seems to have been the heart of settling this little little town and they're from i didn't even catch which country they're from uh the old oh yeah i don't (laughs) yeah the old exactly they're from the old country not so they don't uh discriminate against old countries (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, from wherever they're from, uh, they, ha- they have this matriarchal system uh, 
and the madam apparently has a way with bees. Mm, very. <laughs> and that was some really impressive filming with live bees. Yeah. I, I This is another one where I was expecting, oh, this is going to be a lot of little, like, black fuzzy things in front of the camera, you know, done in post. Let's not be shy. There was some of that, too. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> but not near as much as I was expecting. Yeah. No, they had a lot of interesting stuff, but I mean, the the story became more about uh, Kate Jackson's character. She is the she is the fiance and apparently carrying the child of Edward, uh, the prodigal son. He has been off to school and had no intention of returning to his family because they're just straight up weird. Uh, they don't. <laughs> yes. They don't even really hide it but they do have a kind of power over this town and mm -hmm. I, you almost even get the sense there's a little more to it than just the bees um they all have kind of this gravitas about them in, in the town well the town is named after this family right the town is called bolin, bolin. and they're the van bolins uh so yeah you definitely get the impression that this winery this vineyard pretty much is why this town exists. Right. So it's just like we watch a film where it's the, the, the steel mill or the, you know, the, the lumber yard or something like that. We've seen this, that thread in other films where it's like, Oh, well Jack so-and-so he runs this town cause he owns the whatever. Everyone works for him. Well, you get the feeling that that's kind of the case with this. They admit not everyone works at the vineyard, but because there's a vineyard, there's a town. So, yeah, that's where their sway comes in. Right, but uh, right down to um, one of the brothers is a doctor and everyone listens to him no matter what kind of thing. So, yeah, right. e even in their own little niches, um, they're that town's dominating figure. So, yeah. Right down to the the law, yeah, like if the law comes in, yeah, no, no, whatever, whatever they say, yeah, that's got to be the case. So, <laughs> yeah, well, she danced around on the porch with a bunch of bees. I guess they're fine. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> nothing, nothing strange going on here. <laughs> nope, I think we're good. The, Thanks very much. The guy that died full of bee stings and then crashed his car has nothing to do with the bees that they keep up the road at the vineyard. <laughs> nope. It's all just a coincidence. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but I actually, I actually enjoyed this one. Uh, I enjoyed it probably a bit more than I was expecting to, uh, because of that twist. Because it takes that turn and gives us such a different story than you were expecting. Yeah, I, I this was one I found. Uh, I was just a little saddened that the copies on YouTube weren't better. <laughs> Yeah, I would really like to find a better print on this. There is nothing I could find anywhere that was any better. No, it just everything looks like it's just someone recorded it off air onto VHS and then put it up online. Yeah, yeah, and right down to one of them, I found still had some of the commercials in it. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, no, because I mean, it was good enough that I think. There could have been a little bit more to it if you could just really see and everything that was in the in the film. I I can't let it go though because the, the the bees thing. There is one really silly moment uh, 
uh, where um, Kate Jackson is uh, being, she's in the house. She didn't go to the madam's funeral. Uh, the house is being infested with the bees that now don't have a queen. But because the bees showed up to the funeral and a kid swats them on the, uh, the coffin, all of them take off and they clear out the church. And as they take off out of the out of the church and start to make a beeline to the uh-huh. <laughs> to, to the house, the effect is that little. Let's put a bunch of dots on the film on on an overlay right. and make it look like they're going there. That one was funny. Yes, there. Unfortunately, there is that. But oh, aside from that, though, there is kind of like a really nice creepiness about that because yeah, everyone's running, they're all getting stung, and the Bowens just stroll out and just stand there and watch because the bees don't bother them. That like, ah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> and they did, and it was almost like a kick open the door moment, and all four of them are just standing there. <laughs> yes. Like, that, that was scene cool. was really good, and then I don't want to spoil it, but when Kate Jackson makes her way up to the attic. Yes, yes, I was that. Bring was that very one up cool. Too. Yeah, yeah. The, actually, worth, because you can find it on YouTube, unfortunately, like I said, none of them, none of them are good copies, so just, you know, take a stab and watch one, but I'd, I'd recommend it. If you got a good copy, put it out somewhere so we can see it again. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I'd love to see an actual release on this one on. Uh, even a cheap DVD or something it would be really nice. Yeah, no, that'd be very cool. Moving on to number four. I'm af- yes. I'm afraid I get to announce uh, 1972's When Michael Calls. Yeah. Yeah. Well. When Michael Calls. Uh, just to give a, a brief... Uh, when Michael Calls, we, we are introduced to uh, a, a separated family. A uh, little girl and her mother and their her estranged husband stopping in. And she has an interest of her own. She starts receive the mom starts receiving calls from a from a dead cousin. <laughs> a nephew. Nephew, nephew, sorry. A, a dead a dead nephew. Uh, a tragic accident that happened fifteen years ago. Um and she keeps getting these calls and that in and of itself would be incredibly creepy. Uh, it, and doesn't matter who picks up the phone, Michael's going to talk to them and want to talk to her. But as you pointed out at one point, we're let off the hook a little too early as to what's going on. And we find out the the love interest in her life is somehow using this uh, for his research or whatever it is that he's doing. I don't even I don't even really know what he was. I don't think he was a love interest. I think they actually lived together. She her family took him in, so he's sort of almost like a brother to her, but not I guess, but I got almost con- almost stepbrother like relationship, but they weren't actually step siblings. It yeah. I got kind of a creepy romantic like maybe she wasn't into it, but I think maybe he might have been. Yes, and I should, we should mention he, he, the man in question here, is a very young Michael Douglas. Very young Michael Douglas. <laughs> With a lot of hair. Yeah, when, when he showed up on screen, I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> I didn't realize we actually had some star power in this one. Most of the film I thought was, was or at least the first half of the film, I thought 
pretty creepy. Okay, right. I mean, I'm you've got me. I'm kind of wondering what's going on. You know, is this? A, are we going to find a phone line laying? You know, a down phone line in a graveyard or that kind of story? Or is this some sort of maniac? You know, what's going on? What is this? And halfway through the film, they went, "Oh, it's this guy." Oh, <laughs> you you um you let you kind of led me to believe it might be him. You gave me a red herring and then went, yep. Oh. And so the last half of the film is just, let's run and chase down the bad guy. And like, ugh. well, and, and the let, it, let's chase down the bad guy thing started to really weird me out too. Cause again, we're dealing with, uh, Ben Gazzara is playing the, um, the former husband, um, who is, home again to spend time with his daughter and apparently even try to maybe rekindle the relationship with his ex-wife. But because he's... I, I get that he's interested in, in protecting his his family. I get that. But he ends up... He's like, what, an insurance salesman? He, tra he travels around. He's some kind of sales guy. But in this town, in this moment... He is apparently allowed to become junior detective and ride roughshod literally over everyone, including yes. the town sheriff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, it's, I think it's just something that happens in these movies. And that, that still happens today. You know, the law is useless. It's always the scientist, the doctor, the, the husband, the boyfriend that, has, that leads the charge and solves the crime. Yes. Uh, it, well, unfortunately for our, our little run here, we did run into way too many Nancy Drew style <laughs> items. <laughs> and, and this one kind of led the way. This was our first... Any amateur can get in and do the job better than the appointed people to do it. And <laughs> I, I, I think in this film, in the end, the biggest mystery that this film brought to me was Doremus. <laughs> they kept saying his name, and I'm like, "What did Doritos? <laughs> Dor Dor what?" What are you calling him? <laughs> His name is Doremus. Doremus. Uh, actually, the one that... I, he's Greek, maybe? I I got nothing. Well, and then I, I was particularly fond of a scene toward the end. Uh, first off, he keeps getting knocked out. Like, he got knocked out, like, four times in the film. Oh, yeah, he's definitely got a concussion by the end of the film. <laughs> but in one of them, he's, like, in a hayloft, um, and... The, the Michael Douglas in this case, but the the person that the bad guy is uh, trying to burn him down. He's there. He's going to set fire to this hayloft, and he's literally spraying like kerosene around him. I actually watch it hit his hair as, as he spreads it around. But when he when he lights the hay, like it doesn't catch fire right away. <laughs> and it doesn't touch him. And I'm like, wait, that's, what? <laughs> that's the that's the power of Doremus. The, the power of Doremus. He, he's the cheesiest. <laughs> oh, wait, that's a different snack food. <laughs> yeah, that's Nacho Doremus. <laughs> wow, you did that. You're welcome, folks. 
All right, well, our next film couldn't be any more different. All right, 1984's Invitation to Hell. This is another uh, made, well, obviously it's made for TV. (laughs) Uh, This one was actually directed by Wes Craven and stars Robert Ulrich, Joanna Cassidy, and Susan Lucci. This is the... This is early to mid-80s in one package. Everything about the 80s is crammed into this film. The first note I even made is literally all actors from the 80s were on deck for this this movie. And and another uh, spot for us for Darkman, because... I, I do remember, uh, like, the security guard sheriff, uh, Nicholas Wirth, the sheriff. He he was one of uh, Durant's henchmen in, in, in oh, Dark right. Man. <laughs> yes, yes, that guy. Yeah, you'll uh, don't recognize the name. You'll recognize the face. You've you've seen him. Yeah, he was in Dark Man. I I believe he was in. I think the Return of Swamp Thing. That could be. Yep. As well. Uh, yeah, you'll you, again as. You know, henchmen. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we got Soleil Moon Fry. Punky Brewster herself was in this movie. Bastion from the Never Ending Story. He's the brother in this. So, like, it wasn't anywhere you couldn't turn where I'm like, I, I know all of these people. Yeah, the, the 80s weren't as 80s as this movie. <laughs> <laughs> right, right down to the hairspray. This is, this is distilling everything from. The mid '80s, just distilling it down into one film. It's in the running to being one of the worst films. I think we'll probably watch this October, mm-hmm. but it's also in the running for being one of the most enjoyable. Yes, no. This film is so much fun to watch. It, oh my god, it's amazing. Susan Lucci should have gotten the Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> this is what she should have got her Emmy for. Absolutely. I felt like she was, uh, I almost wanted to say she was channeling, um, oh, what's the, what's the character's name from V, the brunette from Diana, Diana. Yeah. She was, she was channeling a lot of Diana, uh, in, in this, uh, maybe a little bit, it's, especially with the jumpsuit stuff. <laughs> Very yeah. 80s. Towards the end when she's, when she's wearing red definitely looks and the and the big teased hair and everything starting to look really diana uh you never saw diana run around in the white swimsuit no <laughs> though no, not that you wouldn't necessarily have wanted to but <laughs> but but yeah i i mean seriously what could be more 80s the devil has set into a health club <laughs> mm-hmm. the devil is running a health club there is nothing more quintessentially 80s than that. Uh, I'm even thinking back to our days when we joined Bally Fitness while we're watching this. I'm like, yeah, there was a demon run in that place, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, there was definitely a sort of a sense of realism that I picked up mm-hmm. in this film. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. But, yeah, everything about it, uh, it, it cheesy as hell, but so much fun. Yeah, oh my god, was just cheesy. It was ridiculous. There is nothing in this movie that truly, truly makes sense. And it's all so convenient that things... It, it is plot contrivance 101. But it's just done so unapologetically un- 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 that you're like, all right, I'm on for the ride. Well, yeah, and the trip through hell seems like something out of a Scorpion music video... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And again, 
it makes no sense. The solution makes no sense. No. None of it makes any sense. But I guarantee you, you'll have a blast watching this. Just get this is one you get together with some friends, pop some popcorn, have a couple beers. You're gonna have a good time with this one. Yeah, a little a little lubricant wouldn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Uh, make it a, even funnier than it already was. And I know they weren't setting out for funny, but it it really kind of was. <laughs> it, the consumerism, the the driving, and that that was the thing uh like just watching them lament over the cars in some cases. The 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 new family moves in and they got the the crappy little station wagon and here yeah, comes like somebody a- pulling up in their Lincoln. <laughs> Yeah, their little Chevy Citation. <laughs> <laughs> no, ever, oh, so, so 80s. It was awesome. <laughs> All right, moving on to number six from 1971. A Howling in the Woods. Um, this one saw the uh, Barbara Eden and Larry Hagman come back to the screen shortly after I Dream of Jeannie. Um, yeah, I think it was about a year after the I Dream of Genie went off the air. Yeah, and and that was the highlight of the <laughs> of the, of the <laughs> yeah. film. This is the one that we alluded to earlier where you, the title is A Howling in the Woods and you are totally on board with a good down-home werewolf story. And a howling in the woods just refers to a dog howling in the woods, and that's only like for five minutes of the movie tops. So yeah, yeah, it, it plays an important role, but it it's just not what you expect it to be. Yeah, I wouldn't hang my hat on the title just for the the point where the the dog is important for launching the investigation. And again, this goes straight into. Uh, your Nancy Drew mystery of the week kind of thing where our uh, our wayward uh, Liza, played uh, by Barbara Eden, she has come home after being married unsatisfactorily to our hero, Larry Hagman. And <laughs> she's trying to figure out what next to do in her life, and she's visiting with her stepmother and this is where it gets a little disturbing. The step brother, who apparently is not related, <laughs> was he step brother? That's, that's another one of these she... relationships where it's kind of like, who the hell are you? He was just sort of there. He helped around the house. He was a a friend of the stepmom's, but, or he was like, but that's you know, how she was his sponsor. That's how the stepmom uh, introduced him as like her stepson. Okay. Which made it what he ended up being all the weirder. <laughs> <laughs> I, I summed this one up. My, uh, I, I wrote down a quick, you know, my thoughts of it after I watched it. First of all, this is, I, I said, this is boring. <laughs> so this was a long hundred minutes. And any promises a psychological supernatural thriller gets dashed as it turns into a long, drawn-out, run-of-the-mill dime store mystery with a very disappointing final chapter. Yes. It was just so crazily overcomplicated. And then in the end, it's just solved in five minutes. <laughs> solved in five... Yeah, and so wrong. Like, the, the whole town is apparently responsible for 
killing a killer that wasn't the killer but wasn't a good guy either. Yes. <laughs> like, yes, and so they buried the body, and he had a dog, and that's the dog that was howling in the woods, and then you throw in the stepbrother, but he's the stepbrother apparently has a romantic relationship with his stepmom. Yeah, which we I don't know if that was actually a step thing or that's just how she was. I don't know. It, I, it, yeah, it just it's just went off the rails in a hurry. <laughs> yes, it did. And it, and then you know it's like Bob Reed and Larry Hagman. It's forty five minutes into the film before they're in the same room together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or that we're even introduced to him. Like, <laughs> like, well, we get introduced to him like with a phone call or something yeah. and the, towards the beginning of the film, and you honestly get the impression, I'm not going to see him until the very end, am I? <laughs> it's almost that bad. You see him 45 minutes later, and then he disappears for a little while longer and then shows back up again at the end. Well, and then it. Wow. And then I get it's 1971. Um, it 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 started off at least promising from the perspective of uh, um, a woman asserting her rights in her relationship to 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 withdraw from what wasn't working, just to have her fall back into his arms at the end for n- no other reason than he showed up. It's two steps forward, three steps back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that was a little disappointing. But hey, I got to see Barbara Eden for a little while, so silver linings. Moving on. Moving on. All right, now this actually ended up being kind of a fun little bit of uh, nostalgia for me. The 1975 Satan's Triangle, made-for-TV movie, produced for ABC. I had the sneaking suspicion just by the title and reading the synopsis like I might have seen this and as soon as I started watching it I went son of a bitch I know this movie I knew exactly every single one of the deaths we were going to see on the boat and I knew all the logical explanations I, I knew it I remember watching this film probably two or three times I think this was like a WXIX mainstay. Yes. This was gone at least once a year for a few years. I used to catch this probably about this time of year. And if I if I remember correctly, they used to like to block this cuz it, it was always uh it was always like a triple feature on a Saturday cuz you'd get your your noon, your 2 and your 4 o'clock movie uh, and they'd be back to back and They'd get on these kicks, especially come October, where, okay, this weekend's movies are going to be Bermuda Triangle movies. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't remember. I don't remember what it was paired with or anything, but I do remember this film. Strangely enough, I didn't remember the title or anything, but all the uh, the deaths and the explanations of how they happened, yeah. it, that, that is one of those things that for some reason has lived in my head all these years. The final thing that kicked it over and said, yes, I've seen this, was actually at the end when when, when the all of a sudden the woman in the helicopter is a man in the helicopter because... See, I forgot about that. Insane. That was really fun. <laughs> yeah, that was really fun to watch it this time because I forgot about the little sort of double twist that this movie does in the end. I forgot about that. I just remembered all the, oh, well, see, 
what he did, he climbed up, but he's not used to being up in the in the mast. And so when he shot the flare gun, he fell and it, his legs got and all that stuff. And the the rough seas made him th fly through the uh, the the portal or the whatever you call it, you know, through the glass. And that's what killed him. Like I remembered all of that. I didn't remember the end, so it was really fun coming up to the end. Between it's the kind two of, of us, things we had a lock on this. <laughs> yes, <laughs> between the two of us, we could have sat down and actually written out the plot of this movie. Uh, the two main stars, Doug McClure and Kim Novak. You know, again, when I was a kid, these names meant nothing to right. me whatsoever. Uh, so it's kind of nice actually putting, oh, okay, these are names I know now, <laughs> and put them into this film. I do think this film has some really, I, which I would not have appreciated when I was younger, but I certainly appreciate now, some of the storytelling elements. How Kim Novak is telling a story, and the camera pans from her face, and the scene changes from you know the front of her face, and it pans, to she's in profile, and then when the camera leaves the back of her head, the scene has changed. And now you're in the past, and you're, she's telling you what's going on. There was a couple of times that they would do things like that. I'm thinking, wow, that was just really nice little bit of a storytelling element. Yeah, there. that transition is really well done. And it adds to the creepy factor. Yes, exactly. I think I probably enjoy this a lot just for the nostalgia. Nostalgia obviously adds a few points to my enjoyment level on this one. I think it's good. It's it's not great. It's, right. You know, it, <laughs> yeah, but I, it, it, it's obvious in, in a lot of parts, right up until the twists at the end. I, I think they, those were pretty effective. Um, you could have successfully closed this movie out without doing the twist, even. Uh, I mean, him managing to explain all of the things actually still kind of had a nice little bow on it. But they decided mm -hmm. after they wrapped it all up nice and neat and they were going for the rescue, screw all that. Let's mess with them. <laughs> <laughs> right. That I liked. That was awesome. Yes. Yeah. Well, like I said, I, I just feel like I can't give a truly impartial opinion on this one. Right. Just because I remember watching it as a child and having so much of this film live in my head for the last 40 some odd years. <laughs> That gets back to a lot of the like the amazing story stuff and all that. This this feels like something where they effectively used a, some good tension. I mean, again, not not great. It's pretty obvious, but the, the tension was there, and then they just really kicked you in the ass at the end. And I, considering our our sweep of these are not as horror driven as they were, it was nice to get something that got in kind of a at least a little scare. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, exactly. That was good. Yep. Shall we move on to number eight? Yes, let's do. On night eight, we watched The Haunted uh, from 1991. Probably our... Oh, this is the newest one on our list, I think. I, I don't know if we have anything. Yeah, I think this is as new as we got. Um and definitely, I mean, like you were just saying about where, you know, so many of our films weren't really horror, or they weren't really any kind of spook or, you know, monster, and we get a legitimate ghost story here. Yeah. And a ghost story that's supposedly based on actual events. Uh, yeah, no, this was the one, um, and this 
like I think we both found, actually had some good scares in it too. Like yes, no, for, this was a creepy film. Yeah, for I, the things I, I while I was watching this one, I really did start to think of more recent movies like paranormal activity where they have like the found footage kind of stuff where where you witness the stuff of a haunting in this this was a dramatization of that really uh, of that kind of thing happening and despite the effects of the day and, and uh, uh, the very silk screen quality of it all everything seems very soft um, at least from its appearance um, the, the moments that they get in there and it's the moments where they don't push it. Like there is an actual, um, they called it actually a rape scene, um, mm -hmm. where the man is actually attacked by a spirit that sexually attacks him in there. That one, that one came off kind of cheesy. Cause I mean, it's just, hmm. they kept changing the person and she's cackling and all that, but, and he's pinned down. It's not that it wasn't dramatic. It's, I liked the moments where it wasn't clear what was happening, just stuff was happening, where it was just creepy sounds, stuff moving around, thunking, especially when she goes, uh, when the mom goes up to the second floor and there are all of these noises, but it even seems like she's the only one that's hearing them, which making her absolutely insane. So, right, so when they actually start making appearances actual physical appearances that's where you kind of like oh that's when it kind of loses you and that's true because we've 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 said it before your mind can create yes anything you want a lot scarier than whatever they're going to show on film so if you're going to tell a ghost story don't show any ghosts yes le <laughs> less is more uh like right yeah like even when they have the 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 shadow thing that would appear on the screen that one didn't get me as much as uh, the the thump out of nowhere that they don't know or all of a sudden everything is flying at them or or the scene that's really effective is when she's being torn out of the bed by nothing yes um and he is pinned down he can't help her uh that was effectively scary <laughs> right yeah those are those are the moments that, that that creep you out yes. yes it's it's the the things you don't see but are affecting the world around them mm -hmm. well yeah and if you think about uh the original there's lots of uh examples like the film poltergeist um uh, when it's just creepy stuff you know when people turn around and turn their back and then they turn back and the the chairs are up on the on the table and things like that that is what makes you jump Right. Yeah, it's not the, the the creepy demon thing toward the end. It right. it's all the no. stuff up to that. Exactly. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, we'll call it ghost story films, is a similar title, The Haunting from '63. Yes. And that is all done with noise and just unsettling camera angles. And, you know, you never see a ghost. Is it a ghost? Is the woman mad? You don't know. And that's what makes it really freaking creepy. And so, yes, this movie does a very nice job of setting that kind of stuff up. And, yeah, it does start losing stuff when you actually start seeing all the, the visual apparitions. 
I would be remiss if I didn't discuss um, the thing that was truly, truly terrifying in this film. The rampant chain smoking of, <laughs> of Sally Kirkland's character in, in this. Uh, she is just, there's not a scene where she isn't picking one up, putting one down, puffing on it hard. I like, I like, yeah. I'm becoming physically I, ill just watching her. It, I found it actually a little surprising that it was the mom, it was the woman in the thing that was the... Yeah, like you said, the chain smoker. You never saw anyone else with a pipe or a cigar or a cigarette. It was only the mom. I thought that was kind of interesting. You would have even expect uh, Jeffrey Dunham uh, to, to be doing it since he was rocking his hardcore 70s stash. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, for, And in 1991, he's rocking his 70s stash. <laughs> well, I, I think... Just to step back a little bit where you're talking where we think it loses some of the creepiness when you start seeing the actual uh, demons or ghosts or whatever. What carries the film through is the acting in this. Yes. Where you give up the, oh, is it happening, is it not happening, creepiness of it. When we finally, hit, when the film finally decides, okay, yes, they, their house is haunted the family's haunted, not even just their house. The family is haunted. There's a demon and ghosts that are trying to destroy this family. Really, the terror and everything comes from watching this family having to deal with this. And the actors in this film, I think, do a fantastic job. They feel like just everyday people thrown into extraordinary circumstances that they have no way of knowing how to solve or how to... Or, or what the end is going to be, if there is going to be an end. And so, through the entire film, I think, even though the the shift or the focus of your terror changes, it's still there throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. No, uh, that, that moment when you find that, uh, yeah, that uh, it, it's no longer the house. I, they, they go camping, and, and the thing comes with them. Like, right. That... Just like you can't be rid of it. That right. That you can't even move. Is yeah. No, that was. That's just like. Oh, yeah. You're, that you're, that's the. You're one. scared to death for him. Yeah. It's like you picked it up in the house, but it's now a disease that's part of your life, and you can't get away. And yeah. Yeah. No, that it was very effective. Uh, for for what we've had on our plate, this was a legitimately horror movie. This this was very good. All right, our next film. This one from 1975, Trilogy of Terror. I make you nervous, Doctor. Karen Black, a major star, creates a television first. There's a golden chain wrapped around it to keep the spirit from making the doll come to life. Face. To face. To face. With the unbearable unknown trilogy of terror, uh, directed by Dan Curtis, his name comes up a lot in uh, in our films, and again, Richard Matheson' mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, name comes up in this as well. This was an ABC movie of the week from March. What a perfect time for a film like this, spring. <laughs> 
This is actually, it's a trilogy. It's three short stories, each of them starring Karen Black as a, as a different character. I was really hoping to enjoy this more than I did. I mean, this is one of those, like, touchstone films you always hear people talk about, Trilogy of Terror. Yeah. And I, I think what they remember is some of maybe, like, the last five minutes of the third story. And they don't really truly remember anything else. They remember the crazy little doll terrorizing and chasing Karen Black. They don't remember the story about Karen Black and the uh, multiple personalities. They don't remember the story of Karen Black being uh, terrorized by a college student, but then who the college, it, it turns out the college student is really the victim of Karen Black. And they don't remember 15 minutes of Karen Black talking to her mom or her boyfriend <laughs> on the telephone in the third story. <laughs> Th those are all fair. Uh, they, they are. Uh, but <laughs> this was my first watch of this. I, I actually hadn't seen this one before. No, same here. I actually did find. Now, the, you were 100% right uh, on the 15 minutes on the phone. I started to get a little drowsy at that moment uh, until the little wood doll was part of the, uh, the plan. But... The first two, um, second not as much, but the, the first uh, story, especially right now, the, the notion of this this mousy teacher, she's even kind of asserting that she's kind of good with just being the person that she is, but the fact that the entire time while one of her students is obviously ogling her and looking to somehow start some sort of relationship with her uh, with nefarious plans in mind as he undresses her with his eyes at all hours. Um, the fact that uh, that turned into a story of turning it around, that she's actually preying on him, that she kind of... It's kind of advanced for the time, the no notion that, uh, that she's into this, that she's actually... She wants to be the submissive till she's done with it. And then mm -hmm. she's a black widow. She's gonna she's gonna kill and move on. And I really kind of dug that story uh, as it was being told. Um, and then I always love it when uh, we we run into the the character or the the actor that has to play multiple characters within kind of the same. You so that watch Karen Black then come back in the second one, and she's two different people, but they're the same person, and, and she very effectively plays both sides of the uh, the personalities as we as we quickly learn that she is a split personality. It's a little obvious. Uh, I, I don't. Yeah, that one was quickly. I mean, I think within like the first two minutes, I'm like, oh. Yeah, as soon as I, she I kept referring to a sister that we never saw in the room with her. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, okay, I know where you're going with this. But it was still a fun watch from the perspective. She did a great job uh, of playing what was essentially two sides of a coin, but both of them were crazy. Yes. <laughs> so, so the fact that this doctor would even come to her home at all, is, I, I assume he's writing a paper. 
Because <laughs> it's dangerous going to that home no matter what. And then to think that she she's the cause of her own death because she's trying to kill her sister, who is herself. That was kind of a fun uh, end to that particular story. But then, yeah. Well, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the other two stories aren't good. Right. They're just not the kind of stories that someone's going to watch when they were young right? and it's going to stick with them and they're going to say, oh, Trilogy of Terror was so good. <laughs> right, no, you're you're in it for the wood doll that attacks at the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was sitting with a friend telling him that we were watching Trilogy of Terror that night and he's like, oh yeah, that demon doll. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so that's all you know about this film. Did you recognize in the second story the, the doctor? Yes. <laughs> Tie, tying back to our uh, our the, the movie with Soleil Moon Fry. Oh yeah, you know what? That 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 wasn't where I thought of him immediately. You were going for Police Academy. I was going Police Academy. <laughs> I saw him. The first the thing I, I thought of was like, "Wow, we got Punky Brewster, and now we got you know her, her. Punky Brewster's adoptive father." Yeah. No, I had totally forgotten because I wasn't. I, I knew of Punky Brewster, but I didn't watch a lot of it. So. Um, I watched so little. Most of what I remember from Punky Brewster is this guy going punky <laughs> with his, the just the way he would say punky. It always <laughs> sticks in my stuck in my head. Yeah, but the way he was answering the phone, talking to this, uh, I just kept picturing the commandant from Police Academy. So, <laughs> so yeah, during that section, it, it was kind of hard not to snicker a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Mahoney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, a little hard to take it serious at that point. but Yeah, maybe. But uh, I, overall, I kind of, I enjoyed the stories for what they were and, and, and all that. Uh, but, yeah, the, the phone call in the third one, uh, it, it, you needed that damn little doll. <laughs> Just to to overcome that. Yeah. For God's sake, wake up and kill her. (laughs) (laughs) Little cheesy how the thing came to like for for that amulet on that little thing to be that important. It wasn't very secure. (laughs) No, (laughs) I'm amazed it didn't fall off in the box. Yeah, Yeah, she takes it out of the box. (laughs) Kill you now. All right, let's go ahead and move on to our next film. The next one, which I know you're excited to talk about. Uh, for, yes. night- <laughs> for, for Night 10, we have The Night Stalker uh, from 1972. Uh, the, uh, the introduction to the Carl Kolchak uh, character, as I understand yes. it. Yes, exactly. Yes, uh, Darren McGavin plays Kolchak. He would go on to play Kolchak again in a, another film, I think later in 72 or 73, called The Night Strangler. And then he would go on to star in a one-season series called Kolchak, The Night Stalker. Uh, Kolchak is a kind of down-but-not-out newspaper reporter who finds himself constantly... Uh, investigating things that no one else will and all with a supernatural bend to them. And yes, I absolutely love the character of Carl Kolchak. And as much as I love the series, I do think this 
Night Stalker, the 1972 film, I think is probably his best outing. I have so much fun with this one. I, I think it's, I just, it's fun. It's great. I, I love this one. No, please tell, tell me. I, I don't understand. Do, do you like this one? <laughs> uh, see, now, I, I wasn't all that familiar with the Kolchak stuff. I know it's always been one of your characters that you talk about him, but I've never actually seen any of them. So when I see Darren McGavin, I see the dad from A Christmas Story. <laughs> yep. So, uh, it, it, so it, I, I get that kind of side of that. But while I'm watching this, as much as I love... Um, I did. I, I found I loved the Carl Kolchak character. Again, this is one of those things, and it, it's just... It, it's a thing that comes up in TV series. We've already discussed it earlier, the, the, the notion that your main character, no matter what his background is or or where he's entering this, he always knows better than everybody else around him whose job it might actually be to do these things. So yeah. So he's riding roughshod over a lot, a lot of them. And since this one is about a vampire who... Granted, I really hung on there in the middle because he was very clear with his editor that I'm saying he is killing people like a vampire. I am not saying he is a vampire, and I love that. I love mm -hmm. that. And then we went ahead and made it a vampire. <laughs> well, because and I, I think that's what's really cool about this story is, yes, he obviously he sees the signs and he goes, well, look. The guy you're looking for obviously thinks he's a vampire. You gotta hunt him down like a vampire. But then, as the story progresses, as the story progresses, and he actually witnesses this guy toss two dozen cops around, take dozens of shots point blank, and then leap over a fence and 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 run off. That's when he starts going, "Son of a bitch, this guy's a vampire." And so that's what I mean. It makes sense. He's He's gone through the steps. He's like, I don't know what's going on. This is what I think is going on. And oh my God, I can't believe this is what's going on. But he's going through the steps. But as you said, there's the scene where he's throwing cops around like rag dolls. And at no point do the cops catch on that this is a right. thing. <laughs> so, no. so apparently Kolchak knows all at all times that as... As charming and all of that, that's the stuff that starts to take me out of it. I'm like, okay, mm. why does everybody else have to be an idiot for, yes. for Carl to be the the hero? It, it, it could be. Can't we all get on board? And then you you might find the series annoying. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, there's some charm in that too. I I didn't hate this one. I I by no stretch my picking on it is it is it a critique that it was terrible. It was a fun watch. I I, I enjoyed it because yes, indeed it is a vampire, and of course uh, our hero, knowing everything that he does, is just gonna go into the creepy house and save the day because you know he knows uh, he he's that good. Um, and in doing so, uh, he and at least one of the, the detective buddies uh, that that actually kind of sort of believes him, who helps a little bit at the end. But the, the look on Kolchak's face as 
the rest of the cops show up as he's staking this vampire <laughs> who, if we're to believe the way they set this up, the rest of the police don't believe that that is a vampire. Right. So from their perspective, he is pounding a wood stake into a, a, a human male that they don't, <laughs> they, they don't understand the situation. And the fact that he isn't gunned down on the spot, it, yes. it, it just makes it like, all right, we're in a different world. <laughs> Yes. Well, I did like in the very end that, I mean, obviously things have happened that the police can't explain. Yeah. And so they're not going to come out and do a, you know, a press release and say, yes, we were fighting a vampire. But what they did do in with Kolchak, they just needed to get him out of Las Vegas. And they said, look, you executed a man. This, he, he wasn't, he didn't go to trial. He wasn't found guilty. You know, they, they play it kind of straight mm -hmm. they they know something weird happened yeah but they're not going to just legit admit it they can't because they look like fools right but how they play it off and how they get rid of kolchak i think is brilliant yes yes yeah yeah and that that was the redeeming thing there in the end because since they did essentially catch him pounding a stake into another another person well, yeah. there's no reason we can't charge him with murder. <laughs> right. But the the whole idea that vampire or not, he didn't have his due process. That's right. that's the thing that yeah. they they rely on. I'm like, "Ah, oh, that's very nice. I like that." That 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 at least took a little edge off of the fact that they're idiots otherwise. So right. <laughs> like All right, good good that Nice little finish. That, that, that'll that work. The real disappointment is that Larry Linville didn't have more of a part. <laughs> yes, I was just going to say, let's, let's just real quickly just say the other uh, strength of this film is the supporting cast. Yes. First of all, Simon Oakland as uh, editor Tony Vincenzo, who carries over to the other film and to the series. And let me tell you, if you ever watch the series... The moments between Vincenzo and uh, Kolchak are why you watch the series. Yes. That's why I watch the series. I love those two together. They're fantastic. Also in this uh, cast, we've got Claude Akins. You mm. know, good old Sheriff Lobo here is <laughs> Sheriff Butcher. Uh, Elisha Cook Jr. shows up briefly. Larry Linville is, is in this. And then the very beautiful Car uh, Carol Lindley. I yes. love Carol Lindley. She is so pretty to look at. She's worth watching this film alone. Yes, no, and the fact that Kolchak could, could possibly land her was... <laughs> <laughs> that was the true mystery of this film. Before we carry on too long with this one, because that was going to always be a risk, uh, I did... I had to laugh during the... Uh, the autopsy scene at the beginning because yes because larry linville's there for for one which you're just like okay that's that's awesome but it's the way what's that happening ferret face <laughs> <laughs> it, it's the way that they're carrying out the the autopsy too because I, I i get that they're trying to do the uh you're the corpse perspective kind, kind of thing but as they're making their, their motions for the cuts. Yeah. There's no follow-up motion, so they'll cut, 
And then they'll go, mm, ah, mm, uh, yeah, and then they'll make another cut. And, mm, it's ah, autopsy like, by charades. Uh, yes. like, shouldn't you actually open that cavity up? I'm like, I don't need to see it, but at least make the motion that you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> that was just, yeah, again, it's, a, it's of the time. It, improvisational theater autopsy, yes. <laughs> yeah. But still, a lot, lot of fun. All right, well, let's move on, because the next one is very closely related to Kolchak, the Night Stalker. We watched 1973's The Norless Tapes. Uh, this one, again, directed by Dan Curtis. Uh, starred Roy uh, Thinus. I don't know how you say his last name. T-H-I-N-N-E-S. Thinus? Thinus. I'm, you know, Roy Thinus, I think, is correct. And Angie Dickinson. This one, instead of a reporter, we have an author. An author that goes out and who apparently has made a career out of debunking supernatural phenomena. Mm -hmm. And we find out that he has discovered that there truly is something mysterious happening. And he disappears. And his editor is the one that finds his uh, book that he's been working on, which he's been dictating to tape. And he finds just a pile of tape. And so this story is the first tape. I think that's a fantastic storytelling uh, method. I am so sorry. This was intended. This was intended as a pilot for a series that never materialized. Whereas, like, The Night Stalker, I think, was just a made-for-TV movie, and it did well, so they made another one, and that did okay, and they went, okay, let's make a series. This one was intended for a series, and it never happened. And it kills me. Because I think this would have been the superior series. Yeah, just from the way that they set up the premise. Uh, and, and we'll get to that as we talk more about this film. But the, as you pointed out, this is tape one. And yes. our author has disappeared at the beginning of the movie. Uh, without letting too much of the cat out of the bag. We don't get to find out what happens to the author. Nope. <laughs> We get through this first story that's on his arc of trying to debunk the supernatural, which he doesn't get to do because he actually runs into something legitimately supernatural. Um, but this isn't the thing that causes him to disappear. <laughs> yeah, there's still a, you know dozens of tapes sitting on the table. Right, so we haven't found the story that has pushed him over to the, over the edge to cause him either to go into hiding or to be hauled off by some demon creature that we right. have yet to observe. Oh, uh, I think there is so much that comes later that has the Norless tapes to thank. Um, I think I think there's a little bit of X Files in this. Mm -hmm. At least a primer. Uh, or the uh, what was the the Lance Henderson um, Millennium, oh, Millennium the series that followed X Files and stuff like that. There's so much of that that uh, that ties in this. The X Files um, creator claims that Kolchak was a big influence, but uh, I don't know. I I think Norless tapes have more in common with the X Files for some reason. It just has that it has that feel. It's a it's a it's maybe because it's a more gritty and darker feel. Whereas the Kolchak, I think, goes a little bit more to the humorous. I mean, it's never trying to be or to tell a joke, but it's still a lot lighter. Whereas Norless Tapes, I think, is much 
it, it, it keeps a little bit more grounded, a little darker. Well, yeah, because Car- Carl is narrating his way through, and uh, and on top of it, he, he's a bit of a blowhard, so he's kind of comical as he's as he's talking. Even if he doesn't mean to be, you, you can't help but laugh at a character that is fairly self-important. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. Well, because he knows everything and no one else does. <laughs> exactly. And so, so in the Norlis tapes, our author leaves us in, in a fit of panic. I mean, he can't get words out. He he is drinking himself to death in his own home. Um, he is trying to meet with his editor because he, he needs to unload and then he's gone. Um, mm-hmm. That that part unto itself makes the the movie then you get into the story and it's not bad but considering the heavy drama at the beginning about what's going on this didn't that you got the punch at the beginning and then it was just kind of eh through through the really? rest of it i, I oh well, I, really the, the zombie was really not doing it for me <laughs> <laughs> i i mean I love to pick on the absurd, and I get that in the period and all that, but, I mean, there were some scenes his hand was still pink, and then you'd go to the next scene, and they put bothered to put the gray back on his hand, or mm. or the zombie would be reaching for something. There'd be a scene, and you can... You can see where his cuff is wa- is wearing away <laughs> the makeup <laughs> on his hand. And, and, and while... You want to suspend disbelief. It's a little hard when you're doing that, <laughs> when, when it's right. that that's that blatant. And uh, and I, I was struggling with the the motivation for our undead uh, guy until they actually started to tell you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the more it became apparent as more people started uh, coming into play, you started getting more pieces. I felt like this story, especially with Norlis's narration over this. It has a very noir sort of feel yes. to me. I mean, this is uh, this is like something from the nineteen, uh, like a Humphrey Bogart or something, Maltese Falcon kind of quality to it. Uh, the the one line that I'm sure there are people that will tell you that this line is absolutely horrible and overdramatic and terrible, but I love it. The morning I drove down from San Francisco, the weather was foul. A curtain of cold rain fell from a gunmetal gray sky. I'd set up a meeting with Sheriff Hartley and Carmel to discuss the Ellen Court situation. I didn't expect much cooperation from him, but it was worth a try, a way to begin. When I pulled up in front of Hartley's office, the sky had begun to clear and the sun was breaking through. I hoped it was a good omen. Those words I just find, oh, it's like it's like really good chocolate just melting in my mouth. <laughs> I loved it. No, I, I, I'm actually kind of with you on that because, I mean, we were introduced to him as an author, so I mean the notion that he his language would have lots of flourish to it, um, it it fit it, it it does, and it paints that as you said like a noir style picture. Now I I really like this one. I like this one. I might even like this one even more than Night Stalker. Yeah, I'm just really sorry we didn't get to see these series because I, I think that would have been fantastic and it would have been really cool. I could just picture it now, the series, you know, each episode, no title, just a number. 
Yes. The corn spot with the tape. Yes. I mean, oh, that would be fantastic. You're not wrong uh, about your assessment of this, but I think that's where my the air is let out of my tires on this one is because this is intended to become a series, but it still has to be a movie unto itself. And while the story is contained because you get that punch at the front mm-hmm. and you don't get any satisfaction from it at the end, we just end with the editor pulling out tape one and moving to tape two and we go to credit and I'm like, ah, you needed the rest of the series. <laughs> yeah. That makes it that more frustrating. Right. I yeah. That, Cause that's, that's where I'm at with it. It's like, I, there's, there's clearly more. I want more. I'm not going to get more. So no, no, I have a hard time giving this one. It's full due. Cause I didn't get, right. I didn't get a full story. I'm not done. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I completely agree. I can see where the frustration would kind of override any enjoyment. <laughs> it's just, yeah, no, I'm getting to the end of this because I did. I love that start so much and I got no payoff. <laughs> right. Like, what? Yes. Nope. I understand. It's it's like watching your favorite series that gets canceled uh, mid season or not mid season, but during the hiatus, and yeah. so it just never comes back, and it left on a cliffhanger. Yes, <laughs> exactly how it feels. That and for some reason, I kept thinking that um, the guy playing Ba or, uh, or Sargoth, our our demon guy, at, at the end of the film, um, mm-hmm. was played by played by Bob Shot, but. Uh, First, I really had a strong Lou Ferrigno vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I could have seen that. I, I wanted that. so badly for that to be Lou. <laughs> I will point out, though, just like in Night Stalker, though, we do have a sheriff played by Claude Akins. A- an inept sheriff that wants to hide what he thinks can't. the public can't handle. I'm loving the, the, the theme that the, the public can't handle. <laughs> um, yes. What's going on? I'm like, well, hey, no one said you had to report that it's a zombie, but you could at least report <laughs> that there's a dangerous character killing people. All right. Well, as much as I'd love to keep talking Norless, we need to keep moving. <laughs> we do indeed. Um, and we're on to night 12. And this is where, like, the last two had kind of a common theme running. This is the start of the next two that have kind of a common theme going. So no, Night 12 was Bay Cove from 1987. And this is another one where uh, the 80s has thrown up all over a film. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you get all sorts of people from all sorts of places. Like uh, you've got Tim Matheson in the lead role. He's like he's riddled throughout the 80s in all sorts of made-for-TV stuff. Pamela Sue Martin. You got Jeff Conaway uh, from from we'll know him more from Babylon Five. Taxi. <laughs> Taxi. That's where I first saw him. And then of course, uh, what Grease Two Gre- or One? I don't. I'm, I'm not. A, I'm not a Grease aficionado. I don't I am remember. Not either. I'm. I, I'll have to. Excuse me. Sorry, people. I know there's. So there's somebody listening to this right now really upset. Yeah, please, please don't stop listening to us, but uh, Grease is not really our shtick. Uh, <laughs> um, and then the the surprise one, because I didn't look up anything about it before I started watching, Woody Harrelson. Oh, my God. 
baby-faced Woody Harrelson. Very baby-faced Woody Harrelson. And, and yes, and this is, this is of course, the keen Nancy Drew story-style thing where, where this upwardly mobile couple with a dissatisfied husband, uh, he, he's, ti- he's tired of making millions of dollars in white collar and he really wants to work with his hands. And yes. She's a successful lawyer uh, making her way toward partner and they're going to throw it all away and go move to an island <laughs> because, <laughs> because it'll make the man happy. So- <laughs> well, it's, it's a island in the bay and only takes 45 minutes to get back sure. to the boston you know by ferry of course so no uh, no I, they're not ending their lives entirely or at least they don't know that they are <laughs> uh, they don't think they are <laughs> but yes they they move out to what turns out to be this freaky little town uh, on an island where Everyone is Bob and June Cleaver kind of esque. Uh, they're just all a little too close. Uh, mm. That is the part that was kind of effectively creepy. Everyone just keeps popping into the house. Yeah, a little bit. Well, you've got um, what's her name, Barbara Billingsley. Right, right. June herself. The, the the creepy factor in this is that yes, everybody is actually popping into the home, whether they want to, them there or not. Uh, they. they but uh, as as things progress, it's clear the husband is uh, more in line with the townsfolk than um, than the wife is. Yeah, we find out that the inhabitants of the town are actually all three hundred year old witches. Yes, and they're waiting for their reincarnated leader, who apparently years ago actually repented. Uh, in, in a church and it kind of ruined things for them and so now they're waiting for the reincarnation to like make things right and I found it so strange that they play with the old gag with the uh, the backwards name mm-hmm. so the, the witch was named Noble which seems like a pretty ordinary name and they give the modern characters the name Loban like, why did you go that direction? Wouldn't, that just the witch should be Loban. Yes, Lo- Loban <laughs> sounds more witchy. Right, and Noble seems much more 1980s. <laughs> Looks like something you sh- would find uh, on the properly printed uh, business card. So Yes, exactly. Um, and I think if you're going to do a story that is just feels like a Nancy Drew mystery, maybe you shouldn't have cast Nancy Drew. <laughs> No? A little too on the nose for you? A little too on the nose. Here's part of my beef. They're all waiting for this guy to return, who apparently Tim Matheson is our our reincarnated leader. What was wrong with their lives to date? They all seem to be doing pretty good. They've hung out for 300 years. Uh... It's always it's always a matter of it's some anniversary. There's some significant. It's the it's the fifteenth full moon of the twelfth millennium of the year of the you know jackal or something. Yeah, and that was the thing. The deeper we got into the the mystery of this and getting to the conclusion, the more convoluted. It, it, it became like it became unclear. Okay, so it, 
he is this guy what is he supposed to do uh good or right or wrong uh what is her role in this because supposedly she's got to die um and she has to die before midnight on this particular anniversary but it yeah, can't be in the church um it, it just it, it went a little haywire <laughs> there at yeah. the end you know what surprised me is watching this movie i realized I remember watching this movie. Really? <laughs> yeah. Voluntarily? It, it came back to me. Yeah. I think I might have I might have watched this in, back in 87. Wow. I, I think I remember reading that it actually went up against, like, game one of a World Series. And so, yes, I think I was the, the one not <laughs> watching the World Series. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like my deal, but I must have been doing something else that night. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't interested in the sports ball, so I was watching Bay Cove. <laughs> well, I will give this film something, and I I want to give it to him, but I, I feel like I think there was kind of some impressive camera work or, and some impressive lighting and things like that, effects. I mean, there's lots of moments where she's, you know, uh, running through the forest or whatever and there's a lot of like sort of almost strobe effects i think it's supposed to be like the moon coming off the uh coming off the sea or something like that and shining through the trees and it looks really effective there's like a you know a smoke machine going on it, it looks like a 1980s music video but it actually looks really great and i have to think that somewhere there's a visual effects guy that went to all this trouble for bay cove <laughs> Yeah, that, I, I give you that, but then it insisted on like the old 1960s style ending where we reached the climax of the movie and over, done, we're out. Yeah, I thought of you. I, I know that's a that's a that's just that's something that sticks in your craw. And, I, and <laughs> really when it does. happened on this one, and uh, this one, it's abrupt. I mean, it's like you, it's like when you're a crash test dummy. <laughs> exactly. We, it hits a wall. We built up to this moment, and we're out. <laughs> Good job, everyone. We blew up the church. It's over. <laughs> Still not quite sure how she got clear of the blast, but whatever. <laughs> Divine intervention. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that was also a very impressive explosion. I don't know if that was done in miniature or if they built a church and blew it, but that was one hell of an explosion. I, I think that was a, a medium miniature because, uh, yeah, it, there wasn't much to that. Uh, when, like, when the steeple actually fell, yeah, you mm. can, you can if you watch it, um, it's, it's practically cardboard. It's yeah, not, half size kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a half size. Just, in, just big enough to not really make the flame look terrible, but... Mm-hmm but not in the probably full size. Right. And even if it was, it's it's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's cardboard cutout. But, yeah, no, very impressive blast for the end, and I was sorry to see the, the whole town go there. Uh, but, but, yeah, that was a moment where blow it up and we're done. We're out. See ya. The next film turns out to be a very similar story. Uh, again, we are dealing with very old witches. We are looking at 1971's Black Noon. Uh, I believe this actually uh, originally aired on CBS's Friday Night Movies. 
And it was shown uh, several times, apparently, over the course of the next t- decade. Uh, but I did not watch it. And t- <laughs> I had not seen it until uh, this watch. I think this is another one where you have to struggle to find a decent copy. But, there, yeah. I mean, it's, it's okay. It's watchable. But you kind of wish there were better. Everyone looks a little fuzzy. And I'll admit, uh, for for a, a entirely uh, a, not a great reason, uh, the uh, the uh, one character, the uh, the blonde girl. Um, oh, Deliverance. Deliverance. Yeah, Yvette Mimo. Oh, there's another beautiful. I'll I'll watch this film again just just to gaze on her. Yeah, to have a better copy uh, because, and, and that's one of the things I liked. I actually kind of like this one compared to Bay Cove, definitely. Um, but I kind of like this one, and I'm not a big Western guy, but I really liked that all focus was on her as your your bewitching element. It, it was clear something was up with her. Um, she was the thing, and this is, we get Roy Fennis again. He's the reverend in this. Um so Mr. Norlis himself is uh, is present, mm-hmm. um, and, and he is being clearly bewitched by this character to the point where they're not supposed to be in this town. Um, they were headed somewhere else, and while they're there, he, they're trying to get the ministry up and running and get the church built and 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 really help out the town. And of course, there's a baddie. There's literally a guy in a black hat. <laughs> Played by Henry Silva. Yes. And, and uh, so it, it gets very um, cookie cutter for a Western from that perspective. But then there's this this deliverance woman who is is clearly this center point for for what's happening with him to the point where he is losing touch with his own wife. Um and he's a devout reverend and all that. And when it turns out, as you go through the film, that it's the whole town. The mm-hmm. whole town is the, the evil element that's here. And they just need him to feed off of. So they need to break him in order to continue their coven. Um, I... I agree with you. I I like the old west setting. Yeah. I, I I agree with you there. I I like the um, everything you described as far as the plot. Mm-hmm. I like those plot elements. I think this film just takes way too long before you get to any of the meat of those plot elements. I mean, you take out the last ten minutes of this movie, it's just a western about a reverend who gets stuck in a town uh, to let his wife recoup and the the really nice man has a weird daughter <laughs> yeah no it's literally the last 10 minutes of the film is oh and we're witches <laughs> i i grant you that but considering the era this comes from and how westerns were so popular all westerns are are, are paced just like that one was so, <laughs> the fact that they could turn it on its ear, that was the payoff for me. So, as, as much as the normalist tapes hit you at the front and then disappointed you in the end uh, because you didn't get to continue, 
this one was like I it's a western I'm in for the slog I, I got it I got it I got it nice I like that part at the end <laughs> so. okay yeah so in case of in, instead of the big shootout right you just have devil worshipping devil worshipping <laughs> yes well and then I love that little uh, that little dig uh, that okay that just happened and now we pop to present day uh yes um and there's a perfectly uh what looks to be a good christian family uh stranded in their 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 station wagon and here comes uh three of the townsfolk including um deliverance sitting in the middle (laughs) Mm -hmm. going can we help and then escorting them back and then because you brought up in the last one, you do the reverse role play of the uh, the name. Um, this town is Salem spelled backward. Yes. <laughs> that was <Yep>. cool. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> Kudos to them. Yeah, not again, not a great film. You get a lot of that Western drag out slog. But to turn it on the end, I liked it. So. Yep. All right. I will give a. There's a few moments that I I, I, I do like. Um, I like when uh, Black Noon, uh, which is the, you know, the the big the black hat guy. Yeah. They just call him Noon, I think. But yeah. I'm just whatever. Henry Silva's character, he goes to try to kidnap uh, Deliverance, and the townsfolk won't do anything. And he's been taunting the reverend. He even throws a gun to the ground. He's like, come on, come on. Nope, I'll find. Well, you know, don't try to follow me. You're not going to want to find her. And he goes off. And there's a really great and very quick, the camera, it looks like it's holding the gun mm-hmm. and the revolver. And it, it goes off and, and takes down uh, Noon. It, it's Noon. They have it as Moon. Is it Moon? Okay, I got, I'm looking at a typo. Sorry. Oh. Uh, moon. Yeah, that makes more sense with Black Moon. I don't know. It's Black Noon, isn't it? No, well, the, whatever. The, Someone... the, the movie is called Black Noon. The character's called Moon. I have no idea why. I have no. I had no idea. Whatever. Somewhere there might be a typo. But anyway, but there's a. But it, the way it's done and the way it's shot, it's a very effective, and, and it does kind of like ooh, take you by surprise. Yes. And it, and it's. I mean, it's one of those things too, where it's like a. Um, the timing, they they must have shot that a dozen times. They get the timing just right because that gun goes off and Silva goes down and like, woof! That was timed really well. Yes. <laughs> he did that nicely. It looked like he was hit. Oh, uh, and, and this is where you can give Roy uh, um, Thinnis uh, some some really good acting credit here. Is that that look of I, what what did I just do? That, that right, whole, I, I took a life. I'm a man of God, and I just took a life. And and he's com- it's clear he's completely conflicted about what he just did. Yes. And so I it, I think it's got more good than bad. Yep. The other uh, scene I, I I liked is when you know things are coming to a head. Is they they they've built the church after you know, the church had been had burned down. And they rebuilt the church. The first sermon is being, you know, given by Reverend Keys. He breaks script and he starts talking to the people and he starts saying how he's he's sinned, he he's broken commandments, he's coveted things that were not his and all the parishioners start laughing. Yeah. 
Uh, that I that I liked as well. I I will give this movie that 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 was a really nice kind of quick turn, and he has no idea what's going on, doesn't understand whatsoever. No, and since he's been having weird dreams, anyways, I don't know if he's even convinced he's awake. Yeah, it's all it's all a fever dream. Maybe he thinks he's still in the desert, dying. Everything has become surreal to him at that moment, and so yeah, it, like I said. There was a lot of good, effective stuff in here. I was a little surprised because I didn't go in going, uh, this is good. I, I thought this one was going to be a lot harder for me than it ended up being. So, pleasant surprise. Just because uh, you're about to introduce the next film, uh, I wanted to mention again, Ray Milland appears in uh, Black Noon here, who we just saw a couple films ago. Mm-hmm. And, Tom, take it away for the next one. <laughs> Night 14, Daughter of the Mind from 1969. And that's about all I have to say about that. Uh, uh, Oh, and Ray Milland is in it. (laughs) I have to ask you, because I honestly don't know. This one, when it got kicked off, it got kicked off as if it was a TV episode unto itself, because it had a theme song. I've heard that theme song somewhere, and it's driving me insane. I miss you and Mommy so much. I've got to go now. No, Mary. They're calling me back. Mary, wait. Oh, Daddy. I hate being dead. Mary. have to go look i don't know i i I didn't uh i didn't make note of it i'll have to rewatch that and find and figure out what you're talking about Uh, yeah no i i I meant to dig in a little bit more but because this was very current uh i didn't get it much time but yeah the, the the theme song hit me right away i'm like i've heard this music somewhere and then a- after the theme song was over the interest uh died with it <laughs> I was interested in the beginning. Um, I thought, you know, this is 1969. I thought, okay, that was actually kind of impressive. The whole uh, appar- ghost apparition when the car goes through her. The car her. went through her. Yeah, no, that was Yeah, cool. and, and, and everything. I'm like, okay, interesting. You know, you've got her voice coming out of nowhere. Uh, you don't really know what's going on. You don't understand right. what's going on. And through the first half of the film, I thought, 
okay, this is interesting because you don't really know what's going on. It's a paranormal investigation. Mm-hmm. And then the espionage angle starts kicking in. And suddenly we find out that Ray Milan's character has been working for some agency that turns out is actually working for the government. And he's developing something that could be used as a weapon. And now the government's afraid the other side, no countries mentioned, right. yeah. just the iron behind the iron curtain, quote unquote. <laughs> Uh, the enemy is maybe trying to get at him and maybe trying to use you know the death of his daughter to try to get him to defect. I'm like, and wow, that's a very complicated method of trying to get some American scientist. And then, of course, Ray Milan makes the logical conclusion that, well, if he's upset the balance of power, the only moral thing to do is to go to the other side and give them the same thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, no, this one fell apart. It, it after the first half of the movie, it 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 fell apart pretty quick, and it just yeah. went, oh, this is just like another like nineteen sixties spy series. I mean, this is this could have been uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. This could have been uh, uh, pick one, the Saint Danger Man Man from Uncle. Which is why I, I, which is why the theme music is bugging me because it feels like this was an offshoot story from like one of those style shows. And, and you could have seen where something like this could have been turned into a series because your main uh, 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 protagonist here is a paranormal investigator of some kind. You could see where this could have turned into a series. Absolutely, could have probably paired him with uh, Leonard Nimoy, and we could have gotten the uh, that one series off the ground. <laughs> Baffled. Yes. <laughs> yeah this this could have been a plot line of Baffled had it gone to series. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. that's that was the vibe I was getting through the whole thing, and, and I'm not gonna say there weren't some cool stuff, but. But then it gets all Scooby-Doo-ish there at the end as they start to debunk. Uh, well, this is how the wax bold hand thing worked. <laughs> it does. It loses me when the supernatural gets obviously thrown aside. And it's just, yeah, it's just a spy thriller. I'm like, oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Some, some, of the, <laughs> some of the paranormal gags are pulled off with a laser projector pen. I'm like, oh, God, really? Okay. A laser light projector? Uh, first of all, A, what the hell is that? <laughs> B, how do you know what that is just by looking at it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just, it just... And then the pacing on it was just kind of like, oh, God, can we get to the point? <laughs> oh, Highlights, though. Highlights. highlights. Okay, highlights. Minor highlight. Nice little uh, cameo by John Carradine. He was kind of cool as the uh, the one guy that he went to, the, the magician, you know, I'll show you my secrets guy. Um, he was cool. I, I like seeing John Carradine when he pops up. Biggest highlight for me, credited as Edward Asner. <laughs> yes. Is Ed Asner as Wiener. <laughs> <laughs> Saul Wiener. <laughs> One of the federal agents. Oh, it was great to see him. And he, uh, he should have played the bad guy more often. Uh-huh. Because he could, he has a threatening presence about him when he wants to. 
Well, uh, yeah, and this is obviously from his much younger days, and yeah, he had a he had a very stout stature. Like uh, he was uh, definitely a "don't f with me" guy. <laughs> oh well, he even gave a few lines that were kind of like, "Is that a threat?" And he like, "I don't make threats." I, it, or it yeah. was like those that kind of thing, and the the look on his face, and it's kind of like, "I'm gonna die." <laughs> <laughs> This man's gonna kill me now. No, uh, no, he he plays a good heavy. Uh, yeah, it was it was a nice surprise to see him, but but uh, yeah, unfortunately, it was in this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, this is not one I would recommend. I, I kudos for the title though. I, I, oh, oh, the title was definitely drew us in. <laughs> it drew you in, and especially since it. I, I mean, the way they lay out the first part of the the film, the fact that we could be, maybe this guy is totally just deranged and it's all in his head, that the spirit, until they get to a, they let that off the hook pretty quick. But I mean, at the beginning, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was an effective title and then it just kind of went to hell after that. <laughs> <laughs> so bring it on home. All right. 1974, we go on the worst love boat cruise ever. Beating me to the jokes, not fair. (laughs) From an ABC movie of the week from October 30th, this thing actually aired the night before Halloween, Death Cruise. (laughs) And I was so excited for this one just from the title. (laughs) Me too, I'll admit it. This is exactly why... I will never take a cruise because I will get stuck at the table full of these people where not one of them are anybody. They're just all horrid people. I think it would be more correctly tiled. The divorce cruise. <laughs> Spite it, it filled everyone. Yes, it just lost love boat. Yeah, lost love boat. No, because these people hate everybody. (laughs) Oh, that is true. Now, granted, uh, like I kind of dug what they did during the opening credits, though, when when everything was hopeful, Uh, Mm. because they're getting on the cruise. But not only are they getting on the cruise, we're meeting the couples, Um, and so as they're running the opening credits. We see the couple, and they introduce the actors, and then we move on to the next couple, and we introduce the actors. And I'm like, I don't know why. I I, I just kind of dug that little vibe that they had going on. (laughs) I thought it was a little corny, but all right, I'll give it to you. Yeah, well, I mean, let's talk. I mean, it's it's 1974. so product of its time. It's a product of its time. So it was working for me, and especially when we're pulling up Kate Jackson and Tom Bosley. I'm like, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Kate Bosley and or uh, uh, Kate Jackson and Edward Albert again yes. teaming up. You know, from the reuniting after Killer Bees, or, is, or, is it, or they or is Killer Bees? Uh, I forgot what year Killer Bees was. Seventy four. Oh, it's the same year. All same right. year. So. That, that made, made for TV was all about Kate and Edward. Yes. <laughs> it's hard to know where to go from here. because Yeah, I don't know where to begin. Yeah. I'll admit I had a little bit of fun, but only because it's so bad. <laughs> 
This yeah. is maybe it's so bad it's good. Yeah, this is this is well, it's got mystery science theater written all over it, but because because oh, yeah. I just I, I hear Crow in my head going make with the death. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I texted you while I was watching this thing, and I said, I haven't made it to any deaths yet, but I honestly, I'm thinking, I want to kill everyone on the screen so far. <laughs> yes. You shouldn't, you shouldn't root for the killer. <laughs> right. right. Who couldn't have been more obvious who it was. Uh, but while, while I'm watching this, uh, what am I trying to even say about it? Uh, I lost my thread. Go. <laughs> That's the weirdest thing is this really did feel the way it was shot, the way it was filmed. It felt like an episode of the love boat. It really, yes, it really, really did. It even had sort of like these little comical moments when Tom Bosley comes out in his red and white, uh, uh, Bermuda shirt and matching shirt, uh, shorts and, and the, and the knee high socks and everything. It's like, and she's like, Oh, I think I have a headache or whatever. Uh, or, <laughs> I'm going to be seasick. Yeah, she's going to be seasick, yeah. Uh, just by looking at his outfit, it's like, oh, they're all playing up this little weird humor, and everyone's kind of making little sly jokes. I'm like, Julie's going to show up any minute now with Captain Steubing, isn't she? I... Uh, Isaac's going to have a heartfelt talk with Jerry about not cheating on his wife. Right. <laughs> No, that wouldn't. That would have been the doctor again. I think that's the doctor would have had that kind of thing. Possibly. Isaac would have been behind the bar, just making like weird, you know. Mm. <laughs> uh, he'll be doing the uh, the six shooter thing. That <laughs> yes, because of how it was filmed and the way it looked, and it was all so obviously like studio bound. I mean. I don't know what cruise they went on, but apparently they only carry maybe 50 people because the rooms were ginormous. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, that was the funny thing, too. Uh, and I don't know why I was thinking of it while I was watching. Anytime they do a pan back of the of the ship, well, it had that old Titanic cruise ship kind of feel to it where it is more ship than anything else. So as they do shots of like the main deck and all that. I'm like, this must be the most boring cruise ever. There is nothing to do on this ship. Ping pong. Ping pong. <laughs> and I believe I heard an announcement for shuffleboard. Oh, I heard that there was a pool that was open too. Lord only knows where the pool was located. Uh, right. It was probably in a hole in the bottom of the boat, but <laughs> that's where that's where the there's the leak. <laughs> uh, yeah, but. Yeah, it just like everything about it was depressing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the funniest part. No, I got to there was something that was super funny and um I've never personally been on a cruise, but I've talked to people who have. And for those that are not used to being on board a ship, um and it's like this in the Navy too, everything looks the same on the interior. Uh, especially in that era of cruise ship. So every hallway looks exactly like every other hallway. So right. when the, the older lady comes out, <laughs> she's she's gone around in circles a couple of times and she just runs into our uh, one of our characters, Sylvia, and just starts asking her, how, how do you get to the dining room? Uh, and she's like, oh, it's just up there. 
how do you get to the stairs? <laughs> and she's like, oh, it's down this hallway. Where down the hallway? <laughs> yeah, it right. just kept going, and I'm like, okay, this is cute. I like that. <laughs> I will give some credit to the actor Michael Constantine, who played Dr. Burke, who is our our hero in this thing. He's our protagonist. He's our he's he's the doctor that solves the crime. He's Nancy Drew. <laughs> he's the Nancy Drew. <laughs> I will give him some credit because I thought he actually was sort of the standout. I yes. really liked him in this. I think his acting was really good. I, his uh, introduction to the captain where he's like trying to he goes to salute and shake hands and he's like I haven't been in uniform since I since I uh, you know resigned from the navy right. you know I don't know what to do you know that sort of stuff and then uh he goes to leave and he he steps back and goes yeah. to go for another so and it looks like a legit like someone's natural old habits coming back kind mm-hmm. of thing and and no, then, he um, clicked heels and everything I'm like yeah oh, yeah and then throughout the film I just thought he did a really nice job. It was another one of these things where it's kind of like, I kind of want a Dr. Burke series, you know, could this could have been like house, but you know, <laughs> houseboat know it could have been like house, <laughs> but I, I catch the vibe that you're going for. <laughs> or, or how about, um, that probably would have been closer to something like, um, Oh, what was the Jack Klugman? Um, Quincy. Yes. Yeah. That, that would be a little more accurate seeing as how during, uh, during his initial assessment of the first actual dead body is that the only thing that I can tell you is she's dead. <laughs> like, you're a heck of a doctor. <laughs> yeah. He seemed very familiar to me, and I just assumed I, I saw him in something else, and I went and looked. I've probably seen him in dozens of things. He's another one of these character actors who has been in everything and and i am not kidding he's been in everything oh and i i can't i can't help i literally just pulled him up to take a look and he was in quincy (laughs) (laughs) well obviously like multiple episodes of quincy no exaggeration he was in everything i know yeah i'm having this is another one where i'm having struggling to scroll through his uh, list of credits because he's in everything right since uh, since 1959 in everything so no I, I, and he was very good in this uh, for uh, for a guy that is a character actor and since this is an ensemble cast he's as close as you get to a, a, a main character um, right yes because he's the glue for the rest of this film. And the rest of the film, though, however, is incredibly forgettable. Uh, the characters, they're all horrible people, every one of them. And the end and the solution is just, really? All right. <laughs> it, it, it solved, the mystery solves itself, practically. <laughs> I... I I at least got a little kick out of the smugness of the Jerry character basically saying because I've chosen to do what I did where I did it and the fact that I can talk to you about it and you can't do a damn thing because it'll take everybody forever to figure out how to even prosecute this. Um, yeah. I essentially get to get away with it. So um, I, I kind of 
I enjoyed that part. Yeah, that that was actually that there was actually a little bit of intelligence in that that you know what Americans were killed on a Norwegian boat in like Bermuda waters or something like that. So yeah, it's just the logistics of it would keep the lawyers busy for decades. Right. Yeah. No. No. And, and you can't even prove who I am. Right. Because <laughs> he's his identity already changed twice. Um, right. And with a and third I'll just one change on it again. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, that that part was fun. But then it was uh, a little obvious what was going to happen with Kate Jackson. <laughs> so. Right. Well, this is actually one where maybe the ending I like more than the rest of the film. Yeah. You know, when you actually find out what happened and what went on, you're like, okay, I kind of dig that. That took some thought. I wish you put that much thought into the rest of the movie. <laughs> Oh, and, and then you just get this skeezy vibe at some point. Like, none of these characters were likable. So when um, Sylvia has supposedly lost her husband and then Tom Bosley's character, David, loses his wife, so they look at this as an opportunity to hook up. <laughs> yeah, that was very like, weird. Ugh. Very weird. Don't know what the intent, well, like, true intention of Tom Bosley's character was there, but it comes across very weird. I could go on a weird little part with this, though. The sentiment between... Not that any of these characters were likable, but the conversation that was happening between him and his wife during this, that whole... Uh, it actually hit a little deeper than uh, I was expecting, that whole no... No deeper than a Love Boat episode. No, no, but I mean, they were getting into some heavy stuff. Uh, this is a, yeah. this is an empty nester couple. Um, he, he's hung up on the fact that she, she can't get over her kids, but then when actually in a legitimate conversation, she pull, pulls out the fact that the, the, the kids are all I had because you aren't there. It got a little heavier than I was expecting considering yeah. the, the overall trite that this stuff was. So, a few shining moments, but not worth watching. No, not really. And in which case, I do have to apologize to you profusely for having found a better copy to watch because <laughs> maybe the blobs that were flying across the screen in YouTube might have been a little better. Uh, strangely enough, this is the one we ended up... We, we thought we'd have almost nothing to say about it, and this is the one we've talked about the most. And I think that just goes to show that we're probably kind of getting a little tired, and it's time to bring this one to a close. It is indeed. That is all. That is the first 15 films of October. We have got 16 more to go. Uh, we'll be bringing, to you the, bringing those to you in a couple weeks. Out of the 15 that we've watched... What would you say is probably your highlight? Uh, we we hit it out of the park right away. Um, the the night of the scarecrow, was, a dark night of the scarecrow, was just so good. I yes, just so good. Yep. Nope. I agree. I think that is probably the best. Um, the most fun is still uh, Invitation to Hell. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, I will give you that that's the most fun. Uh, I, I would count The Haunted as a surprise. Um, yes, that, that close second, I think. Right, and, and, and I mean, we've had a smattering of in-betweens through there, but uh, um, 
Ooh, what would you say was our worst? Death Cruise? <laughs> Death Cruise was pretty bad. Um, but it's kind of like, it's so bad, it's good. When Michael calls, it's just so forgettable. Howling in the Woods, I think, is the one I would consider the, the worst I've seen so far. Because there's just nothing I enjoyed about that one. Yeah. It no, really I, wasn't. I, I love Barbara Eden, but yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I grant you, it's just all over the map and terrible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All the others, I've got some highlights, some scenes, some moments. There's, there's nothing in that one for me. <laughs> no. All right. Well, we will see what the next 16 films have to offer. It should be a good time. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks with those. Until then, have a great Halloween, everybody. Stay safe, get lots of yummy candy, and we will talk to you later. Bye, all. See ya.